a chapter that is dealing with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming in particular, the second coming to Jerusalem to establish His kingdom, His millennial kingdom. Isaiah 63, verse 1. Before we begin reading, let's pray. Our Father, we thank You and we bless You for Your precious Word that we are about to receive, to read, to hear, and to grow upon. I ask, Father, that You will open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears. Especially, Lord, open our hearts to receive Your Word. To make it clear, Lord God, that we as believers in Jesus Christ have nothing to fear in this world, no matter what is taking place in it. And yet we are not to be indifferent. We are, Lord God, to trust that You are indeed in control and know the end from the beginning. And that really our mission is to be Your servants, to be aware of what is taking place And to let as many people as we know come to the glorious grace of Jesus Christ. But as we look at these last chapters of the book of Isaiah, we are reminded that Jesus keeps all of His promises. That there's never been a promise He hasn't kept that He gave and there isn't a promise that He won't keep that He's expecting us to believe He will do. And I ask, Father, that You'll continue to build us up in faith and in trust in these things, especially as we see the signs of the times in which we live today. Our Father, these tragedies that we see happening across the world is a a reminder to us of how fragile life is and how many souls without Christ will awaken in an eternity separate from Him and from you and in an eternal damnation that none of us would want anyone to experience for an eternity. Please help us, Lord God, to awaken to these issues and to these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 63, verse 1 says, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Much of what we have seen in the previous two chapters of the book of Isaiah has pointed to the return of Jesus Christ to Zion, to Jerusalem, to His city. A city, as we noticed last week, was given a new name. A name sought out. A city not forsaken. That name given to Zion at the very end of chapter 62. But this section in chapter 63 contains a description similar to the one given previously, one of divine judgment over the nations by which Judah 
was to be redeemed. Uh, If you'll go back a few pages to Isaiah 59 for just a moment, as a point of review and then as a point of comparison as well. Isaiah 69, I'm sorry, Isaiah 59, verse 16, reading down through verse 20, it says, He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, according, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. The coastlands he will fully repay. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. Now, in reading that and reminding ourselves of what we have studied previously, the prophet in our text tonight, here in, in Isaiah 63, is looking into the future. Now, this, this chapter is broken down into three sections. Isaiah looking into the future, Isaiah looking back into the past, and then Isaiah looking in the present, actually looking up to God in the present in his final prayer, as we'll see it in just a moment. But here he's looking into the future, and he sees Messiah returning from a battle. Now, some consider this battle to be the battle of Armageddon. And this is certainly possible, because that particular battle... Uh, climax is what we call the day of the Lord. Now, let me state that the day of the Lord is not a day like we know a day. It's not a day made up of, of uh, 12 or uh, 24 hours, I should say. 12 hours of daylight, 12 hours of night. The day of the Lord is an extension of time. We consider it to be seven years of tribulation. And in particular, the, the, the last three and a half years of those seven year period being the great tribulation nonetheless this being the day of the Lord the day of our God the day of vengeance of our God and so this this particular passage that we're reading in chapter 63 is is giving us somewhat of an indication of this day of the Lord now I'd like for you to turn to Revelation chapter 19 because I want you to see the similarities that we're going to, to see with Isaiah's 63. Revelation 19, beginning at verse 11. It says, Now I saw heaven opened. This is John, of course. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And by the way, this is in contrast to another person sitting on a white horse in Revelation chapter 6. That's a different person. Here, this one is called, this person is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. We know who this is, as we continue to read. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Sound familiar? We just read something in verse 1 about a garment. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Uh, Verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. This is Jesus. 
Remember John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is the Word of God. Jesus, and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed Him on white horses. Now out of His mouth goes the sharp sword, that which He should strike the nations, and He Himself will rule them with a rod of iron. I want you to notice how often it talks about Him. It says, out of His mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it He should strike the nations, and He Himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He Himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And He has on His robe and on His thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's no denying who this is. There's no question whatsoever that this is Jesus Christ Himself. And there's no question that He says He is the one who goes forth. He's the one who strikes nations. He's the one who rules with a rod of iron. He's the one who treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So in comparison now, in comparison with all that we've read in the first verse of Isaiah 63 and what we read in chapter 59, the prophecies describe the day of the Lord's vengeance. And our text asks the question, Who is this? Who is this being described? He has come from Edom in the sense that He has judged there first, and from there now comes to the land of Israel, returning with a robe that is stained in blood. Now, by the way, Edom, the word Edom, comes actually from the name Esau. And so Edom, which means red, is, is the land that Esau, the son of Isaac, settled in, which is in southern Jordan, to the southeast of Israel. Bozrah, which was at one time the capital city of ancient Edom, is singled out in our text due to the fact that its name means grape gathering. And Isaiah is developing a detailed comparison between the treading of grapes and the pouring out of blood. So if we consider what is said in Revelation 19, verse, uh, verse 15, where it says that He Himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God, and as we're going to read in just a moment, that, that it brings to mind that picture again of treading the winepress. A winepress being this, this large uh, uh, stone uh, vat where grapes were put and, and, and where they were actually pressed down. You could do it with your feet, I suppose. But it was the pressing out of the grapes and, and uh, there would be you know, holes at the bottom that would let the juice run into certain vessels. But the picture is given of judgment. And the picture is given of comparing that to blood. And so with dramatic vividness here, the prophet introduces a person whose clothes are made crimson by blood that he has shed. That's verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah, this one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? Blood that he has shed as one who comes to conquer, as one who comes to judge... And then with an air of triumph, he strides forward in the greatness of his strength. And when the prophet poses the question as to who this is, the answer comes from the mouth of the victor himself. And it is, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. 
So the one coming says, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save, that's who it is, we know who it is. Jesus identifies himself as by what he says and what he does. What he says, he speaks righteousness. What he does, he comes to save. And, and even in the midst of judgment, he wants men to know that he is mighty to save, not only mighty to judge. Now I know that we've, bre- we've broken down the, the, the two comings of Christ. The first time he came, he didn't come to judge, but he came he, that uh, those who believe in him might be saved. When he comes again, he is going to come to judge. But he never gives up the very fact that he comes to save as well, and he comes to deliver. He comes to deliver his people Israel. He also comes to deliver us into glory. He is always going to save. So, please understand that. He's not only mighty to judge, yes, the, the wonderful pictures that we see of him, the grand pictures of him, and, you know, with his eyes a flame of fire, and, and out of his mouth the sword. Praise the Lord. We know who it is. But he does what he does because he comes to save. One indication of this is perhaps something that we might miss in this verse. Something to consider. Something I want you to just to think about. Isaiah says that Messiah is returning to Jerusalem from Edom and Bozrah. This, this you know, as, as being a part of his judgment on this land of enemies. But uh, Messiah is returning to Jerusalem from Edom and Bozrah. The city itself being very close, that's Bozrah, very close to the ancient city of Petra. How many of you have heard of the city called Petra? Just a few of you. Okay. There's a city in, in Jordan called Petra. As a matter of fact, if any of you have seen the movie uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, in the very last part of the movie, they're going into this particular city. They don't call it that at the time. But when you see it, it's a city made into a rock, built into a rock. That's the city of Petra. In Jordan. That's what they used to film that particular movie. Well, that city was also called Sela. S-E-L-A. And not only uh, is Jesus coming from their exacting judgment on the enemies of his people, but he also, and here's what I want you to consider, is also coming from their rescuing those Jews that were in hiding. Consider, if you will, something. Consider the persecution of the Jews during the tribulation period as Jesus has described it in Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 and 16. Let me read it to you. Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, in other words, the abomination that makes desolate the very temple that is going to be rebuilt, where Antichrist, right in the middle of the three and a half year, well, of the seven year period, which is after the first three and a half years of the tribulation, sets himself up as God in the midst of the temple. That's the abomination of desolation. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, he says, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Well, this is where they flee. This is where they will be fleeing. There are mountains there. And all within those Canyons and all where those mountains are is this particular city called Petra. 
Now there is an interesting description of this in Revelation chapter 12, and I want you to look at this also. Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. When it speaks here of a woman, it is speaking of Israel. It says, Then the woman fled into the wilderness. Again, the same picture that Jesus gave us. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. So corresponding then to the last half of the tribulation period. If you go down a few verses to verse 13, it says, Now when the dragon, of course we know who that is, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, Israel, who gave birth to the male child, Jesus. Who gave birth to Jesus? Israel. Where was Jesus born? Where did he come from? Israel. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time, that's three and a half years, from the presence of the serpent, so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. So whatever means that the enemy is going to do or, or take against Israel at this particular given time, is not going to work because God is going to carry these people to this place of safety in Petra which is Selah. By the way, we studied this in Isaiah 16. This was a long time ago, but we studied it anyway. Isaiah 16, verses 1 and 2, where it says, Send the lamb to the ruler of the land, notice, from Selah to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion, for it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest, so shall be the daughters of Moab at the forts of the Arnon. But the comparison, of course, is the, the Selah is the place. Selah is Petra. So with that in mind, it's a thought, something to consider. That as Jesus is coming out of this particular battle, out of this particular judgment, that he not only comes out of there to go to Jerusalem, but rescues those that are in Petra, because that's where they are. Which, again, lets us see the picture of the fact that Jesus is more than just one who is mighty to judge, he is mighty to save. Now, go back to Isaiah 61 and look at verse 2. And remember that these were the words that Jesus had shared in a synagogue one day. But he only stopped at the proclamation of the acceptable year of the Lord, where it says there in verse 2. When he gave that whole prophecy about himself, he stops here and he says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and doesn't read on in the synagogue. But we studied it to say that he comes two times. To proclaim, first of all, the acceptable year of the Lord in His first coming, and then the day of vengeance of our God in His second coming. So when Jesus came to the earth the first time, it was to inaugurate the acceptable year of the Lord. And when He comes the second time, it will be to climax the day of vengeance of our God, which we now get a closer look at in the next section of our text, verses 2 through 6. Let's read that whole section together. Isaiah 63, verse 2. Why is your apparel red? Apparel red. By the way, remember, there was one question already asked. Who is this that comes out of Edom and out of Basra? Now there's a second question. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? Remember what we read where? In the book of Revelation. I have trodden, and notice, he answers the question. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. 
For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. Now, the second question is asked concerning the garment of the Lord. And the Lord answers again. I have tread, or I have trodden, the winepress alone. Now, this is reminding us of something. This reminds us that this work of judgment belongs to Jesus Christ and He alone. The work of judgment is not ours. The work of judgment is not the church's. It is not those who consider themselves high and mighty. It is not to those who think of themselves as holier than thou. As if the Lord needs help. The Lord doesn't need help to judge. You see, there is only one who can judge, and that is the one who is perfect, holy, righteous, just, and true. And none of us are that ourselves. Why? Because we're imperfect, because we're human, because we were born in sin. Thank God that He saved us through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Amen? So, (laughs) thank the Lord. But He alone can judge, just like He alone can save. You see, these are important thoughts. Though we will be part of the heavenly armies that accompany Christ... We will be returning with Jesus Christ to rule and reign with Him for a thousand years in the Millennial Kingdom. Though we are going to be a part of that heavenly army, the work of judgment belongs to Him alone. I asked you to turn to Isaiah 59 earlier. I'm going to just read verse 16 again. You don't have to turn there. But in verse 16 it says, He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness has sustained him. Now please get the understanding here. When you go back and you read in verse 5 of our text here, I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. It isn't as if he's looking for the help. It isn't as if he says, you know, I could use a little bit of help here. This is not what he's saying. You have to understand the mindset of the Hebrew language and the mindset of, 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 of the, under, the Hebrew understanding of this particular passage. And the way that it is being written is to tell us God is just making it real clear to us that He doesn't need us. He doesn't need anyone. And again, it's because He alone is the one who can judge. So He had looked, in a sense, in... in, in the language of our understanding, he had looked for someone to help, but there was no one to prove the point that there is no one. And so he came himself. And just as he came himself to die for their sins on the cross, remember Jesus said, I came for the, to seek the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He came unto his own, John says in John chapter 1. He came unto his own and his own received him not, John 1.11. He came unto his own. Who are his own? 
Israel. He came unto His own people. Do you see that He came to die for them first? He came to die for their sins on the cross, so He is to be their final deliverer then from their foes. He came to save them. He came to deliver them. Thank God that He not only saves them, but He came to save us too. For all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. You see, in God's great plan, there are two things that Christ will accomplish alone. Two things that Christ accomplishes alone. First of all, He atones for our sin alone. He atones for our sin alone. He alone hung on the cross, bearing the weight of all of our guilt, bearing the weight of all of our sin. Jesus and Him alone. And so the first thing is, He atones for our sin alone. No one hung on that cross with Him. No one could. He was the perfect Lamb of God. That's why when John was to initiate, in essence, the ministry of Jesus by His preparation and, and, and completing that prophecy of Isaiah that says that there was going to be one who was the voice crying out in the wilderness... John said, Behold the Lamb of God, behold Him who taketh away the sins of the world. He was pointing to Jesus Christ as the perfect Lamb of God. Secondly, He judges the world alone. Secondly, Jesus judges the world alone. He doesn't need us to execute His ultimate judgment. We have to leave that to Him. Besides, He hasn't called us to judge. He's called us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's called us to proclaim the love of Christ. And the salvation that comes only through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the enemy will be crushed. There is an enemy, folks. There is an enemy today. There is an ultimate enemy. We know who that is. That's the devil himself who today influences many leaders, many kings, many nations, many peoples. We wouldn't want them to perish. I think of what Peter says of the Lord's own heart, that the Lord would have none to perish, but that all should come to repentance, but will they? You know, we find ourselves in a... In a very trying situation, I believe, in our country today. We as believers in Jesus Christ are looking for the coming of Jesus. In the midst of all of that, we are in the midst of a presidential campaign. Uh, a whole lot of lines have been drawn over the years, especially in the last 20 years or so, as to where we stand. Politically, where we stand morally, where we stand in a lot of ways. And there are a lot of people today who are thinking that by choosing the right person, that somehow that's going to be the salvation of our nation. And I don't know about you, and I don't say this from the political standpoint. Honestly, don't. But as I look at the candidates running for president today, 
I have yet to hear anybody, anybody, say anything that says with, with sincerity and truth and humility that they are followers of, true followers of Jesus Christ, true followers of the cross. And that, though it should bother us, should not worry us. You see, as believers in Jesus Christ today, our faith and trust is in the Lord, not in man. And while we have an opportunity to partake of and participate in the, uh, the political process, we need to do so with a lot of prayer. So the Lord already knows. There have been times when we've had presidents that we wonder, why, why, why have we had them? And, and uh, we have to accept sometimes the truth that if this is what the nation wants, this is what the nation gets. When the, when the Jewish people, when the, when the Israelites wanted a king, they kept crying out to the prophet, Samuel, we want a king, we want a king like all the other nations. We want to be like them. You know, that's what our nation is saying today. We want to be like all the other nations today. So God says, if that's what you want, that's what you're going to get. So we want to become like the enemy? Because nobody really loves us right now as a nation. And let me also say, no, not too many people like Israel either. As a matter of fact, there's some that would rather have Israel be totally dissolved from the face of the earth. By the way, that's a, de- that's a demonically uh, initiated desire. In Ahmadinejad of Iran, and in all the other ones who don't want to be as bold as he is, they feel the same way. There is an enemy, you see. And, and, and we can try to be like all the other people who say, well, you know, the Christian church and all these, you know, wackos, you know, who think, of, you know, that Jesus is coming again and that he's going to do this and that. You know, we, we, we're progressive here in this nation. We're, we're you know, we're, we're uh, uh, sophisticated now. We don't need that. So who's going to take a stand for the gospel? Who's going, to, who's going to take a stand for the cross? Who's going to take a stand for the truth of Jesus Christ? Who's going to take a stand for the salvation that comes only through the blood of Christ? Oh, we don't want to hear about blood. You see, here's the problem. And you can read this in the book of Philippians chapter 3. In the book of Philippians chapter 3, it talks about those who are the enemies of the cross. Though they call themselves believers, they call themselves, enemies, they call themselves believers, but Paul says they're enemies of the cross. We are living in those times today. There is an enemy. And one day the Lord is coming to judge righteously this earth. I tell you, I encourage you. Be wise in the Word of God. Be wise in the Scriptures. Be awake and aware that these things are getting ready to happen and we need to be on God's side. You know, there, there are some people who say, well, you know, we're on God's side. Yeah, but, I mean, you know, God's on our side. We want God to be on our side. Hey, I, we need to be on His side. And His side is the side of truth. 
So is there, ju- is there judgment coming? Yes, he says so. And just like any season, you know, there's a season of life, there's a season of springtime, a season of growth, a season of summer, but there's also a, there's also a hidden warning. It's not really hidden at all. The warning is summer has passed. And you're not saved. This is the, you know, the time for salvation has ended. The summer's passed, and you're not saved. A warning in the book of Jeremiah. There is an enemy, you see. and the Lord is going to crush the enemy like grapes, and force to drink, and, and, and then force them to drink their own blood from the cup of God's wrath. These are the pictures that we're getting in the. In the prophecies that we're looking at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and it, it was even something that was familiar to the Jewish people because in Isaiah 51 verse 17, it says, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of His fury, as God has had to even to them execute judgment upon them because of their rebelliousness, because of their disobedience. He says, you have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. So you know that this is going to come. If it's come to you, it's going to come to my enemies. And they're not even his enemies, but they've only been acting like his enemies. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 15 and 16, it says, For thus saith the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. God is saying, there's going to be people that are going to be judged. Peoples, nations that are going to be judged. For having rejected God, for having rejected the truth of God, for having rejected the truth of, of, of His Son, for having rejected His Son, for having rejected His blood, for having rejected His cross. And then I want you to consider the statement made by the Lord Himself in verse 4 of our text in Isaiah 63. Look at verse 4. Isaiah 63, verse 4. It says, For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I tell you, you can understand this. I I was going to say, can you understand what this is saying? I'm going to tell you now, you can understand this. Jesus says, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. What does he mean? Okay, you're going to understand this. The first phrase, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, sounds not only foreign to us, but totally out of character with the person of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Look at it. The day of vengeance is in my heart. We think of Jesus as what? Love and grace and mercy. All right? But simply because we never think of vengeance being in the heart of Jesus. But we have to go back to His own words in the Gospels to confirm this. Go back to John chapter 5. Go to John chapter 5. I say go back to, but let's just go there. We haven't gone there yet. John 5.22 says, Now Jesus is speaking and He says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Now Jesus very, uh, said a very simple thing. You can't misunderstand what He said. 
The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Who's coming to judge? Jesus. It's the second phrase that explains to us why the Messiah can say that he has vengeance in his heart. The second phrase of that verse now. Go back to Isaiah 63 verse 4. The second phrase says, And the year of my redeemed has come. You see, it isn't that God loves punishing sinners. It isn't that Christ loves punishing sinners. What he does love is vindicating the redeemed. He loves to vindicate the redeemed. He loves to save the redeemed. Folks, I want you to notice the time implication. A day of vengeance, a year of of redemption. A day of vengeance, a year of redemption. A day of judgment, a year of grace. Do you understand that? You should. Because God is a God of truth, a God of righteousness, a God of justice, a God that is holy, holy, holy. When He says there is a time that He has to judge the things in heaven and earth, He will do so rapidly as if in a day. This is why it is called the day of the Lord. Be thankful it's not called the year of the Lord. It's called the day of the Lord. But the year of the redeemed? What does the Lord say about His own time continuum? To the Lord a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. A day of judgment, a year of grace. What does God really care about? He really loves His redeemed and cares for them. Isaiah 51, let's go back there for just a moment. Isaiah 51, verses 22 and 23. Thus saith the Lord, your Lord, the Lord and your God, who pleads the cause of His people, See, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no longer drink it, but I will put it into the hand of those who afflict you, who have said to you, Lie down, that we may walk over you. And you have laid your body like the ground and as the street for those who walk over you. He says, I'm not going to let that happen anymore. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to get you back. And then I'm going to hold on to you. And then I'm going to afflict those who have afflicted you. Because I love you, my people. Now after looking to the future, Isaiah now looks back into the past at what the Lord has done for Israel. Let's go on in verses 7 through 10 now of Isaiah 63. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us. 
and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which He has bestowed on them according to His mercies, according to the multitude of His loving kindnesses. For He said, Surely they are My people, children who will not lie. So He became their Savior. In all their affliction, He was afflicted. And the angel of His presence saved them. In His love and in His pity, He redeemed them. And He bore them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and they grieved His Holy Spirit. So He turned Himself against them as an enemy. And He fought against them. Sounds like the history of Israel, doesn't it? Isaiah praises God for His loving kindnesses and His goodness for the love and compassion imparted on Israel. And so the Lord affirms in verse 8 that they are His people, children who will not lie. Now you would think, well, wait a minute, they, they, they often did lie. Yes, but He's affirming that they will be as children who will not lie, which means more than just what we consider dealing falsely. It means that they would no longer deceive and disappoint Him. Folks, let me just ask you this question. Won't you be glad when you are going to be in a state where you can't sin anymore? Won't you just be glad? See, I mean, we don't want to sin. We're, We're believers in Christ now. We don't want to sin, but sometimes we do. Sometimes we get angry at people. Sometimes we, you know, we, we, we turn to our, we become selfish. Let's face it, we become selfish and we think about ourselves only. And, and then, you know, then after a while we start kicking ourselves. However we can do that. We start kicking ourselves because, because we keep thinking, you know, man, I, I don't want to do that. I, I'm supposed to love people. I'm supposed to love them in the love of Christ. So why am I doing this? I can't wait for that day when I don't have, I don't have to do this anymore. You know, just having that kind of heart to say, oh, Lord... Redeem us now so one day we can just all live in the peace, love, mercy, and grace and truth of heaven and of Jesus Christ because we don't want this anymore. So he's saying there will be a day when they will no longer be as children who lie. They won't deal falsely, but they will also no longer deceive and disappoint the Lord. Much like a a fruit tree. In other words, he's describing it in terms like a fruit tree that no longer yields any fruit. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 17 says, Though the, fruit, the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. You know, that, that's, what, that's the description that he's giving. That, that, that his own people have been like, like fruit trees without fruit. That's the kind of dealing falsely, you know. Look, I'm a tree of the Lord that I bear fruit. And then you look at it and you say, where's the fruit? Do you remember that Jesus even cursed a fig tree that had no fruit on it and the fig tree withered? Isn't that a tremendous picture? Of people who say they're something and they're not? (laughs) Though the labor of the olive olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. There's a lot of pictures there of deception and of disappointment. But God says one day you won't be there any longer. You won't have to worry You'll be with me forever. And the Lord identified, it says, with their sufferings in verse 9. As He does with us today. Verse 9, in their affliction He was afflicted. And the angel of His presence saved them. In His love and in His pity He redeemed them and He bore them and carried them all the days of old. What a beautiful verse. The Lord identified with their sufferings as He does with us today. 
I'm going to give you three, three verses of Scripture. Judges chapter 10, verses 15 and 16. Judges 10, verses 15 and 16. It says, And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. And he, and he showed favor to them. Deuteronomy 32, verses 10 through 12. Deuteronomy 32 says, He found him in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord, the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign God with him. God was touched with their afflictions. And this is how God and Christ sees us today. 1 Peter 5. Verses 6 and 7. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. And notice verse 7. Casting all your care upon Him. For He cares for you. He cares for you. If I could just get that across to people today. That God cares for them. What a change of heart. If they would just receive that. How different people would be today. Not because I said it, but because God says it. Because God promises that. Cast your cares on Him. He cares for you. And then it was the angel of His presence. Who's the angel of His presence? It's Jesus. You know, anytime we see this, the phrase, the angel of the Lord, it's an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. But the angel of His presence, very beautiful fact here, the word presence literally means the angel of his face, the angel of his countenance, the angel of the presence of God because his face is present before us. It was the angel of his presence that saved them always and continually, for of no angel could it ever be said that they showed love and pity toward Israel like the angel of the Lord. You see, when you read the text, it says, in His love and in His pity, He redeemed them. That's the angel of His presence. That's Jesus Himself. It's never said that of any angel. It only says that of the angel of His presence, the very reflection of God, Jesus Christ. Psalm 139, verse 7. It says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your face? Where can I flee from your presence? We all know the answer. We can't. <laughs> we can't. And yet, the children of Israel rebelled. They rebelled against their God, grieving His Holy Spirit and asking, Where is our God who did wonders for His people? Why isn't He working on our behalf? 
Despite the outpouring of God's love and God's mercy, His people responded with cold, rebellious, and unresponsive hearts. Let's look at verses 11 through 14 of our text. It says, Then he remembered the days of old. Moses and his people saying, Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with him, with, with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them, who led them by the right hand of Moses, with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble? As a beast goes down into the valley and the Spirit of the Lord causes him to rest, so you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. But their question was, where is he? If that's what he is for us, where is he? And yet in the midst of the Lord's discipline upon his people here, prophetically speaking, the Babylonian exile, the prophet remembered the days of old. This is what he's remembering. He's remembering the days of old and the mighty hand of God and knew that that hand could be raised again for his people. Isaiah, you see, refers to the ease of progress that the children of Israel made through the exodus and the wilderness experience. By that one very phrase, as the horse in the wilderness, it was to give them a picture of the ease of the progress that they made and how God will once again bless them in their regathering and in their restoration. Exodus 6, verse 6 says, Therefore says, uh, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. God promised it and God did it. And by the way, it's an outstretched arm. You notice that? God only needs one arm. He doesn't need both arms. He could use both arms if he wants. But it only talks about an outstretched arm. Seventeen times in the scriptures it says outstretched arm. Jeremiah 32, verse 17 says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Again, it is in the context of God stretching out his arm to rescue and save and deliver his people. So this is what Isaiah is remembering. And lastly now, the prophet looks up in his present situation. He has looked forward. He has looked back. Now he looks up at the present situation and he calls on the Lord to bear that arm and to de- display his power. Let's look at verses 15 through 19 now. Look down from heaven. This is a prayer. Look down from heaven and see from your habitation, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart and your mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Doubtless you are our father, though Abraham was ignorant of us, and, I, and Israel does not acknowledge us. O Lord, our, you, O Lord, are our father. Our Redeemer from everlasting is your name. O Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Return for your servants' sake. The tribes of your inheritance, your holy people, have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. We have become like those of old, over whom you, have, you never ruled, those who were never called by your name. What a plea the prophet is giving here as a prayer for his people. You see, Isaiah plunges directly into prayer that the Lord would look down from heaven and see the anguish of the people. The very mention of the expression from heaven tells us something. 
It gives indication that the Lord had withdrawn Himself from their midst because of their disobedience and rebellion. You remember when uh, in the wilderness experience that uh, the Lord told them, I'm going to be with you as a cloud of uh, a fire by day and a pillar of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. In other words, I'm going to be in their midst always. And, and so I'll be there. You come worship me and, and you know, I'll, I'll protect you. I'll keep you. I'll watch over you. I'll give you everything you need. I'll provide for you. And then they began to rebel. And then they began to you know, complain. They began to murmur. And they began to criticize Moses. And, and just on and on and on. Where's that presence today? So now they say as their people, Lord, look down from heaven. Where is the Lord for us now that Jesus Christ has come and given us His Holy Spirit? We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Lord is with us. In essence, we don't have to pray, Oh, Lord, look down from heaven, because He's here with us now. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. See, so you get the picture then. They're having to cry, Lord, look down from heaven. Why? Because where's His, where's his presence with them? Because of their rebellion. Listen to the words of the Lord in Hosea. Hosea 5, verse 15. I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. You see that? I will return to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction they will earnestly seek me. Well, this is what they're doing. And there will be a day that Israel today, the Israel that we know today, the Israel that is present today, is going to do that one day. But when will they do it? They'll do it when they finally see their Messiah and realize who He is. And they'll see Him who is, whom, they have pier- whom, who, whom, he has, whom they have pierced. They'll see Him. And they'll weep. Because they realized all along this was their Messiah, Jesus. But He comes and He's gathered them together because of His great love for them. The prophet is pleading for the nation of Israel to be restored. Just as God had come down in fire at Sinai, so let Him come down again and reveal His awesome power to the nations. Verse 16 gives the reason why the prophet turns to the Lord. Is He not Israel's father? Verse 16, Doubtless you are our father, though Abraham was ignorant of us, and and Israel does not acknowledge us. You see, Abraham and Jacob knew nothing of the people, of their of the, of the people and their sorrows, and they could and they could even help less. Israel may have descended from them, but they cannot act as father to the people. Abraham is not their father. Jacob is not their father. God is their father. Do you, do you understand that? Do you see that? That name is fitting only to the Lord. You see, why why did Jesus get in trouble with the the scribes and the Pharisees? What did He call God? Father. Who is He to call Him Father? But He is. We have no father but Abraham. Boy, did they miss the boat. We're reading the Old Testament here. And He says, Abraham and Isaac, they didn't know you. They didn't know us. You alone are Father. Jesus was only telling them the truth. And even if Abraham and Jacob, even if they did disown the nation, God would not. 
God would not disown His nation. Psalms 27 verse 10 says, When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Then the Lord will take care of me. Isaiah, for people cried out for help because they had turned away from God. You see, Isaiah, on behalf of the people, cried out for help because they had turned away from God. In fact, their hearts had become so hardened that they no longer feared the Lord. That's verse 17. None of the people seemed to reverence the Lord, to esteem Him as the Creator, the Sovereign Lord, and Majesty of the universe. Neither did they fear the judgment, the holy wrath, and the vengeance of God. I tell you this, church, we need to know the God that needs to be feared. And we need to fear the God that needs to be known. Isaiah, on behalf of the people, cried out for God's help because they knew there was still some servants, that is, true believers among them. That's the second part of verse 17. Not all Israelites were genuine and righteous followers of the Lord, but there were always a few sincere disciples who trusted the Lord with all their hearts and obeyed His holy commandments. Thus the cry is for God to help His people for the sake of these few. Moreover, in considering the cry for deliverance, the Lord needed to take into account His promise to true believers that He would always deliver them. Isaiah, on behalf of the people, cried for God's help because their enemies had destroyed the Lord's holy temple. Verse 18. Of course, this refers to the future destruction of the temple by the Babylonians and then centuries later by the Romans. But then, that's just the near fulfillment. What about the far fulfillment? That is yet to come. But with the temple destroyed, it was as though the Lord was powerless to stop the nation's hostility against His people and their worship of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord needed to arise to prove His power, for His very honor was at stake, at least with them. Isaiah, for the sake and and on behalf of the people, cried out to the Lord because of their appalling sinfulness. It was as if they had never belonged to God. Did you see verse 19? We have become like those of old over whom you never ruled, those who... We're never called by your name. It was as if they never belonged to God. Their sins had separated them from God, alienating and cutting them off from His very presence, guidance and blessings. All because they had broken the covenant between the Lord and themselves. And this is the prayer and the cry. But the only answer that is given is to seek the Lord. For His people to seek the Lord while He may be found. I sought the Lord and He heard me and delivered me from all my sin. Seeking the Lord is that step that the nation of Israel needed to take needs to take, will need to take before the Lord that loves them. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 29 says, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find Him if you, if you seek Him with all your heart and with all your soul. Psalm 105 verse 4 says, Seek the Lord in His strength, seek His face evermore. Proverbs 8.17 says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. Hosea 10 verse 12 says, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, 
For it is time to seek the Lord till He comes and rains righteousness on you. And Jesus Himself, and we'll close with this verse, Jesus Himself says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Seeking the Lord is the answer for the children of Israel. This was the cry of Isaiah for them. Though he is crying to the Lord for mercy, the idea of seeking the Lord was the responsibility of Israel to seek Him. If you seek Him, you'll find Him. It, it, it holds true today. When we can finally get into the hearts and the minds of people who we know need Jesus Christ, and we get them to see their sin, we get them to see what they are before a holy God. And when we point them to the cross and say, you see, you today, where you are, you are in a sinful state, so far from God, so far from eternal salvation, so far from, from redemption. But look to the cross. Look to the cross of Christ and realize that the blood that was shed on that cross was for your sins. That Jesus, down through eternity, knew and knows you even now. You have to come to that realization. You need to come to that place of seeking the Lord while He may be found. Because no one can save anyone. That's the whole thing. Jesus came alone to atone for our sins. And Jesus alone will judge our enemies. And the enemies of righteousness, and the enemies of the cross, and the enemies of heaven, the enemies of God. He alone. To get that into the minds and hearts of people, that can be done if we will pray for them. Isaiah prayed for his people. We need to pray for our people. We need to pray for those that we know are far from God, far from reality, far from the truth of the gospel, far from heaven, far from Christ. What good was it for that one man in the book of Acts to say, you almost convinced me to become a Christian. Almost. Well, in spiritual matters, almost doesn't count. Horseshoes, almost as good, but not in salvation. If you know anything about jazz, there's a lot of almost in jazz. But almost doesn't count in salvation. We don't sit outside the gates of heaven and think that's all that we need. Because sitting outside the gates of heaven is an eternal separation. You, can, you can't be one inch close to heaven and think that's good enough. Because one inch outside of heaven is an eternity of separation from God.
praise the Lord that God loves his people and does everything in his power and his might to bring about salvation. But it still takes the individual heart seeking the Lord while he may be found. Let's pray.